So we are a month away from Easter, and I want to spend some, some Sundays walking toward the cross. And today we want to focus on the Garden of Gethsemane, <clears throat> where Jesus prays, Father, remove this. Right? This is actually a, a picture, a nighttime picture, of some of the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I am told that an olive tree can live for up to 2,000 years. So it may be that some of these olive trees were actually there um, when Jesus was there. Um, let me, let me kind of orient you as to where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Here's a, this is from an ESV study Bible. This is uh, the Temple Mount right here. Okay, And Jesus, they believe, probably had uh, the Last Supper on the south side of the Temple Mount in, in a... Uh, house on the south side here. Then he and the apostles crossed the Kidron Valley. So they would have gone down a steep ravine, crossed a creek, and this is the Mount of Olives over here. And here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, there's Josh in the Garden of Gethsemane reading uh, about the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus. Um, he would have been arrested, taken through the, the gate here into the city of Jerusalem and brought to the palace of the high priest where he is, uh, a little kangaroo court takes place and they decide they're going to kill him. Now, we don't know where he spent that night. Could have been in some kind of a dungeon that they had here or this is the Roman... Uh, Fortress Antonia, maybe he was in a, in a prison cell here, but the next morning then, he is on trial again before the Sanhedrin, then before Pilate, then before Herod, then before Pilate, where he's scourged, given his crossbeam to carry, carries it outside the wall, and crucified at Golgotha. Now, let me read Matthew's account Of the prayer. Matthew 26, 36 through 44. Then Jesus went with them, the apostles, to a place called Gethsemane. And by the way, Gethsemane means olive press. So uh, there were olive trees, and there was probably a, uh, a, a stone press where they would press the olive oil out of the olive. So it's called olive press. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So the sorrow that he is feeling is close to killing him. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, so he leaves, there's the 12, well, 11, then a little further, the 3, and now there's Jesus. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for his eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then Judas comes with the army, he is arrested and taken away. Now, there's so much we could focus on here. Here's what I want to zero in on. The, the prayer, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then the second version, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This glimpse into the heart of our Savior and into his prayer with his Father raises all kinds of questions. That's why it's called Mysteries at Gethsemane. Um, There's questions about the relationship of the Father and the Son. There's questions about Jesus' nature, human nature and divine nature. There's there's a, a mystery involved in how do you agonize and submit in prayer to an event that has already been predestined. This is going to happen. Yet, it appears like he really is making a choice. And he really is making a choice. So there's, there's a number of mysteries. And we're going to raise them, look at them, maybe not even resolve them. But the end goal, you know, I think there should be an end goal of every lesson. Um, The end goal is not for you, go out and do something. It's fall on your knees and worship him more. All right? We're just going to, uh, at the end, I hope be filled with deeper love and um, amazement of who Jesus is here. All right. So let's, let's look at four mysteries. The first mystery is this. Have we ever done this before? The, the issue between sovereignty and human responsibility and choice. Okay. So here, here it is again. Um, we have a tension between the sovereignty of God. This is a predestined thing that is already going to happen. We know it. Yet... There certainly seems to be a real agonizing choice that Jesus has to submit to. So let's let's take each of these things. First of all, the sovereignty of God uh, or predestination. It seems to be coming up a lot lately in Bible studies. And Ryan, thank you. Uh, in <laughs> I've, I've been addressing this issue. A lot lately. Well, let's hit it again. Um, Some people just say, well, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in it. Well, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, 
You have to believe in it. Now, maybe what you believe about it may be different than what somebody else believes about it, but you can't deny it because there it is, Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Later on in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him. So, so you can't say, I don't believe in it, unless you want to cut these verses out of your Bible. It's, what do you believe about it? Now, there are some who say, well, predestination is nothing more than foreknowledge. It's God looking into the future, seeing what we're going to do, and that's predestination. But that, that's, that's not a, it doesn't deal with the word. In what sense is just knowing about the future the same as destining things, right? And in fact, in this verse, the most profound thing is not the word predestined because some people do this. They go, well, all this is talking about is we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. So uh, this, this is a limited predestination to getting your inheritance. But if you keep going on, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what this is saying is it's not just salvation that's predestined. Everything is. Right? Now, um, let's, let's just give some examples. Prophecy. The Old Testament has tons of prophecy that is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The New Testament has prophecy. Um, you know that every tribe will hear the gospel before Jesus returns? Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all ethnos. Um, so it's not just... China, it's every, every subgroup, every linguistic subgroup in China, and then the end will come. That will happen. It's predestined to happen. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back and watch it. We are part of that. We want to be part of sending and part of praying uh, for this to happen. But this is a predestined event. How about this predestined event? Jesus looks Peter in the eye, and he says, tonight, you're going to deny that you even know me three times before the rooster crows two times. Peter goes out, denies that he knows him, and cock-a-doodle-doo, right? Look at all the complexities involved in that. First of all, you've got rooster timing. Second time, you've got three random individuals putting Peter on the spot and Peter denying him after Peter swearing that he wouldn't. Right? The detail of that is amazing. Now, what about the crucifixion? Well, 700 years, oh, by the way, the crucifixion was predestined before time, right? 
But in time, a guy named Isaiah, a prophet of God, writes 700 years before the birth of Christ about a servant of the Lord who's going to bear our transgressions. And it's so certain that Isaiah 53 speaks of this future coming servant in past tense language. Right? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. By the way, crucifixion had not even been invented yet by the Romans, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is a done deal. It's going to happen, right? Now, the, the first step is to get Christians to understand that God is sovereign. That takes a while. But, you know, after 15 years of beating that drum, some of you, you're going, okay, I got it. It's all predestined. We're just robots. No, 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 no. You can't fall into that extreme that we're robots. We are accountable for every choice we make. And Jesus made a very real choice that he agonized over, but eventually submitted to, to go to the cross, to overplay the sovereignty and to overplay the predestination is to rob him of the glory that he deserves for submitting, for choosing, for making a very real choice to go to the cross. This prayer was not play acting. It was real agony. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Here's a, a footnote in, in the MacArthur Bible. This suggests a dangerous condition known as hematridosis. The effusion of the blood in one's perspiration. perspiration. It can be caused by extreme anguish or physical strain. Subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst, mingling blood with sweat. Christ himself stated that his distress had brought him to the threshold of death. So, first mystery that I want us to just ponder here is that Jesus is predestined to go to the cross, yet to go, he must make a very real choice. He must submit to this choice. Right? That's the first mystery. Second mystery. One God and three persons. Who's he praying to? God. Who is he? God. 
Are there two? Are there two gods? No, there's only one God. Okay. Within the first 500 years of Christianity, the focus and the debate in the different councils was the issue of making sense of what the Bible really taught about the persons of the Godhead. Councils were held, the Council of Nicaea and Ephesus and Constantinople, um, and creeds were written and heretics were banished, and they were trying to define, how does this work? Who is this God? Okay. Now, let me point out that the Bible clearly affirms that there is one God and only one God. Here in Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So how many gods are there? One and only one God. Okay. Jesus affirms that there is only one God. A student of the law comes up to him and says, I got a question for you, Rabbi. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, he doesn't quote from the Ten Commandments. He quotes from the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. Right? The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But don't rush past that first part. How many gods did Jesus think there were? One, right? So first biblical point, there's only one God. Old Testament teaches it. New Testament teaches it. Jesus teaches it, okay? Second thing you need to understand, Jesus affirms that he is God, okay? Where does he do that? Well, in, in numerous places he does it. But throughout the Gospel of John, there are a number of places where he refers to himself as I am. He's arguing with the Jewish people, and he says, truly, I, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and then the proper grammar would be I was, but he doesn't say before Abraham was, he says, I am. You go, didn't he speak good? He spoke good. He was God. What he's doing here is not a grammatical slip-up. He is saying before Abraham was, and then he says the name of God, Jehovah, I am. Remember Moses at the burning bush? Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. God's name is I am. And Jesus is claiming to be I am. And some people go, well, you're reading that into it. They didn't understand it that way. Yes, they did. Look. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't throw stones at him for bad grammar. Right? He's claiming to be God. Now, uh, so as the early church studied the scriptures, here's what they've got. They've got one God and only one God. And places where Jesus claims to be God. Now, a solution that you might come up with 
is a thing called modalism. Okay? Modalism is the heresy that says, yes, there is one God, and he exists as one of three persons at any given time, but not at the same time. So he moves from one mode to another. He turns from, uh, from Bruce Wayne into Batman and then into Robin. <laughs> but not all at the same time. In my analogy, he does. Okay, there is no separate Robin here. Have you ever seen them together? Oh, you, we have. All right. Is there a, 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 tr- a tri-person superhero? Robin becomes Batman. That is so heretical that I don't even want to go there. Okay. All right. So, so the idea here, they're trying, the modalists are trying to uphold the oneness of God and the three persons But the only way they can conceive of it is by saying, oh, he's only one person at a time. Okay? The problem with that is we see in Scripture the three persons talking to each other. Who's he talking to in the garden? He's not talking to himself. I don't want to go to the cross. Well, you should go to the cross. No, he's talking to the Father. Right? Let me show you some other verses. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, with means separate identity. This Word and God, for, for the Word to be with God, has to be separate. And the Word was God. Same. How, how do you... Well, the, the, the formula that, that comes out of the early councils is God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, so the modalists, and modalism still exists today in certain circles... The modalists would say he's only one person at a time. But you also have problems with, for example, the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. you got Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father speaking from heaven all in the same scene. Okay. Then there's Jesus' prayer, not, not here in the garden, but in John 17 he prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want now what we had before creation, this glory that we shared. And he prays about that time when he and the Father shared that glory. But 
but they're two separate persons. Okay? So, you go, well, why does this matter? Isn't this just a small thing that theologians argue? Well, it matters because, here's the question. As Jesus is on the cross, whose wrath is he suffering under? If you don't have the Father pouring out his wrath upon the Son, what's going on on the cross? All right? So, you, you go, well, Pastor, you raised this. What's the answer? How do, I, don't know. I don't know how this works. Sometimes with theology, the best we can do is come up with the box that we have to live in. And the box is there's only one God. That's the top. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Live in there. should be a triangle because it's the Trinity. Okay? But now, now let's go deeper. You, You with me so far? Let's go even deeper. There's the mystery of one God and three persons with two wills in one person. Okay, and that, it's not in your bulletin. I got even deeper in the sermon between Thursday at noon when I sent it to Debbie and when I did the PowerPoint, when, and then I went even deeper this morning. You go, what do pastors do Sunday morning? We go through our notes and redo everything because we go, what was I thinking, right? Um, so here we have Jesus in the garden who is fully God and fully man, who has both a divine nature and a human nature, but he's only one person. One God, three persons, the one person, fully God, fully man, but he's only one person. He's not two persons. He has a a human nature, and a human has a will, and that will always submits to the Father, but not without struggle, not without temptation, but never is that struggle or temptation sin. Okay? Now... um, there are, so in the, you know, the early church, they had these councils um, where the, the pastors got together and the bishops got together, and they tried to put words around defining who is God. And um, here are some ancient Christological heresies. Okay? In fact, let, let, me, let me put it this way. So the early church, they had... Uh, the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and the Constantinopolitan Creeds and and the Ephesian, I shouldn't say creed, but the the councils. They came up with statements. Now, um, those early councils and those early creeds are all agreed upon by the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. So we all agree 
on these early creeds. Now, the creeds don't make, the, don't make this truth right. The creeds affirm what the Bible teaches. Okay, sola scriptura, our ultimate authority are not creeds, but scripture. But when a creed accurately teaches what the Bible teaches, then it is a useful thing. Okay, now, um, years later, the Protestant Reformation took place. And they came up, not with creeds, but with confessions and catechisms. So there's the Westminster Confession that would follow in the the line of thought of John Calvin. Some of you boo, some of you yay. Um, And then, really, off of the Westminster Confession came the London Baptist Confession, 1689 edition is the, the, the most accurate one. Okay, And here is a two sentence statement that really in two sentences takes all the debates and the creeds and the councils and the confessions and 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 very accurately gives us a statement of how to think about Christ all right two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without Converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Now, um, one way to really get this down is to talk us through the different heresies that, that arose and see how this statement refutes these heresies. So, um, the first two are rather easy. Ebionism basically said Jesus was a human and that's all he was. He's human, but he's not divine. And Docetism said the opposite. He's divine, but he's not really human. He was kind of a phantom. When he walked on the beach, there were no footprints. Okay? Well, This definition, two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. So, two natures. Ebionism denies the divine nature. Docetism denies the human nature. Now, down here is Arianism. Arius said he was human and he was, he was even more than human. He was a great spiritual being, but he was created. Therefore, he wasn't God. So this has like a dotted line of, of uh, spirituality around it. But Arianism um, is, in essence, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus is a powerful spiritual being. He's a human, but he's not God, right? So this first phrase, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures rules out Ebionism, Docetism, and Arianism. Okay? Now, along comes Nestorius. Nestorius says, okay, let's emphasize that he's fully human and fully divine. But you know what his problem was? He said that Christ was two persons. Okay? Two persons. Well, the next thing says he's one person. 
Don't conceive of Jesus as two persons glued together. Okay? You go, okay, let's put the human person and the divine person in a blender and blend them together. No. Now you've fallen into Eutychianism. If you blend them together, it's created a third thing. Logicians call that a tertium quid. You don't want to go there, right? <laughs> That's the last place you want to go. Um, so without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. Apollinarianism basically did the same thing kind of in a different way. They said he was human. He had a human shell, but divinity on the inside. Okay? Um, so this is one way to... It, now, now they'll tell you this. Uh, they'll say most churches are filled with heretics <laughs> who just don't know they're heretics because we never think about the Trinity and the divinity of Christ this deeply. And one way, one way to test would be to give you a quiz to, and your answers would reveal, that's a Eutychian in the third pew over there. That's, an, uh, an, that's Ebionism coming out of your mouth. That's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> um, conclusion. Now, the conclusion to my third point. We still have a fourth point. Hang in there. Okay. Not only does this statement do a good job at fitting together the biblical evidence, it makes sense of the prayer. Not my will, but thy will. Okay? There's two persons. Two, he's not talking to himself. He's talking to his father. And they share a common will in the sense of the sovereign will of God. But here when we talk about the choosing will, the human nature of Jesus has to work to submit to the will of the Father. Okay? Now, last question. Was Jesus sinning by praying this? By asking for this to be taken away? So now the, the fourth mystery, temptation and sinlessness. And here's the answer. The temptation to avoid the cross and even the prayer to take the cross away was not sin. If he had walked away and not gone to the cross, that would have been sin. But the temptation and the struggle and even the prayer is not sin. And we know that Jesus never sinned from Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in every way you've been tempted. The difference is he never gave in. He never sinned. But what this tells you is 
being tempted and struggling in and of itself is not sin. Okay? Here's an even more perplexing one. Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Follow the Spirit, you'll never be tempted. Well, he was led by the Spirit to be tempted, but he passed the test. He never, now James 1 says God does not tempt. So you got to lay all these puzzle pieces on, on the table and you have to come up with the conclusion God does not tempt, he cannot sin, but Jesus was tempted and never gave in. Now, those are the four mysteries. I'm going to close with two thoughts. One for us, to apply to us, and one just to worship him more. Okay. Here's the point for us. The real work of prayer is not the asking, but the submitting. The real work of prayer is not the asking. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I did a pretty good job. I had a prayer time today. I advised God on how we should handle this situation and this situation. Right? The real work is not just the asking, but submitting. Right? The not my will but thy will. Notice, uh, even between the first prayer and the second prayer, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from, from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he, if it's possible, take it away. But notice in the second prayer, my father, if this cannot pass, he's, he's starting to realize this is, this is not possible. If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. So does your prayer life include the not my will, but the thy will be done, submitting to God's will? All right. Second Don't think Jesus was simply afraid of the physical pain ahead. Now, I, uh, crucifixion, I, I, it's horrifying. It's horrifying to think about the flogging and the, uh, the, the nails and hanging and suffocating and the agony and the nerve endings. and It's just horrible. But that's not what he's trembling over. He asks for the cup. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. What's the cup? Well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is reference to the cup of God's wrath. What he's terrified over is facing the full wrath of God head on. Revelation 14.9, and another angel, a third, 
followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the what? The cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Here, the cup of God's anger and wrath is poured out on unbelievers forever and ever and ever. Jesus was not just going to experience physical agony, but the full strength of the wrath of God, the cup of his wrath. Now, let me try to anticipate a question that you might ask in connection time, which is a means of grace, by the way, that you can use to be discipled, connection time. Um, (laughs) How can one man endure the wrath of God for all the people he's redeeming in six hours. Well, first, let me play the mystery card. I don't know. Okay. Let me suggest that however it works, the payment was accepted. How do we know? God raised him from the dead. His his resurrection from the dead, in essence, was God saying, accepted, paid in full. I accept that. Okay. But here's where I think we would have to bring in the divinity of Christ. No mere man could endure that wrath. And we don't want to diminish Christ's humanity. But now I think we have to delve into the reason why Jesus was not just fully man, but fully God, to endure, I heard that, to endure the full wrath of God. Now, in the, in the beginning of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it begins with Jesus in agony in the garden. He's sweating, he's trembling, he prays. But God strengthens him. And he gets up. And a snake crawls out from in between his legs and he crushes the head of that snake and he goes on not wavering. That's a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The snake will bruise your heel but you will crush his head. He chose to go to the cross. God strengthened him. He got up and he went to the cross. And I think our, uh, our only response is to worship. So let me pray and let's worship. Lord, we're, we're dealing with things here that are beyond our comprehension. Yet we want to give you thanks and praise that you, the one God who exists in three persons, you became a man fully God, fully man, and you chose to go to the cross. And we thank you for making that choice to redeem our souls.
And Lord, rather than walk away in frustration, we choose to accept your infallible and errant word and worship you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name.